session one, passive men and vulnerable women. And this is uh, essentially just going to be a sketch of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the story of perfect creation and fall, not in an exhaustive dive, but in a, in a survey relevant to the topic that we're looking at. Okay, so not an exhaustive dive into all of what Genesis unfolds, but merely into the, let's say, gender role sketch that Genesis paints for us. Okay, I want to say that on the front end because there's so much in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that we just can't get into all of it in 20 minutes. So, with that being said, I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 26 of chapter 1, and then we will go from there. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The reason we start here with the text of scripture in terms of creation is scripture is a calibration point for us in a culture that is providing many differing definitions and opinions on what gender and creation and the world around us means and looks like and, and how to understand it, right? The world provides an interpretive lens to see things through. Genesis also provides an interpretive lens to see things through. And Genesis, I think, provides a divine lens, meaning it, it doesn't give us a human take on what male-female relationships look like in creation. It gives us God's take on what they look like. And that's a really important thing for centering ourselves because well, we need answers to these kinds of questions. In the, in the Christian church today, we're facing a crisis in our modern era, which is to say that we've been riding on the coattails of tradition and history for so long that many of you and many of people in the broader evangelical church don't have answers to basic questions that culture is answering uh, because we've simply never really defended them well in, in church, right? Questions about, well, what is maleness or what is femaleness or Why can't uh, people switch genders? Or why does it matter that marriage is only between a man and a woman, right? These are questions that are coming up really in our our day in the last like 20, 30, 40 years. And they're questions that you might say, well, I think scripture has an answer to that, but I'm not sure what the answer is. And and you might say, well, that's because your, your your capacity to answer those questions is limited by the fact that you've been essentially resting on tradition for the last 2000 years, where You've assumed those roles because the Christian worldview has birthed many of those roles, uh, but you don't have a good defense for it. It's kind of like uh, what happened in school once the calculator is released in classrooms, right? Before that, people had to do mental math and had to do arithmetic themselves. But when the calculators are released, you remember math teachers, it's it's both a blessing and a curse. Kids can do harder math problems now, but their ability to do mental math is is really diminished. Their ability to do those basic skills, right? Now, what happens if you have a whole generation that was raised on the calculator then all of a sudden the calculator ceases to exist or someone, someone rips it out of the classroom. Now you have a whole bunch of students who have no idea how to do mental math, but they've been assuming the principles of mental math and all their other equations, right? They're going to have a hard time doing seemingly basic things. I think that's kind of what has happened to the church in terms of tradition, right? We have, we have ridden the tradition of the church in understanding male and female roles, marriage, and things like that. And now that culture is stripping those things away and challenging those definitions, we're finding we don't have good, good answers a lot of the time. And that's not to say we don't have good answers, but often we, we're not walking around with them in our head and able to engage with the world in a sound way with those things. So Genesis, I think, provides at least a centering point. So what do we learn from these verses in Genesis that begins to center us? The first thing we learn is that creation, male and femaleness in creation, is an intentional part of God's design. 
You'll notice when uh, in verse 27, God creates man in his own image. And in creating mankind in his own image, what happens is he makes them male and female. To quote Tom Askell on this, he says, there's only two ways to bear the image of God as a man or as a woman. That's not to say that there's this general category called human, and then there's traits over here that are female and traits over here that are male. And where they overlap, that's what it means to be a human, but there's these kind of divergent traits. No, humans are only one of two ways. They're male or they're female, and there's no real way to kind of distill down the, the common thrust and really separate out maleness or femaleness from any individual person. You're created either as a male or as a female. Those are kind of the two things that we take away from this text. Now, I'm not going to be able to get into defense of, for example, gender tonight. I'm going to assume that you're on the same page, hopefully, that uh, gender, there's only two genders and that that's kind of in creation here. If you have questions on that, it's not that I'm not willing to have that conversation, but that's just not going to be the focus of, of our time tonight. We won't be able to get into it. We're more going to explore the differences between maleness and femaleness as we see them unfold in Genesis. Okay, so that's at least Genesis 1. Now, Genesis 1 doesn't give us more specific details than that on maleness and femaleness. But if you go to Genesis 2, you'll see kind of that more robust account of male and female creation. And I'm going to be picking it up in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted the Garden of Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. So God makes Adam out of the dust of the ground, breathes life into him, puts him in Eden. Okay? Eve's not on the scene yet. Okay? So God takes Adam, puts him in Eden, creates him, and then God gives him these instructions in verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so God has kind of put Adam in the garden and he's given him kind of this, this, this world to look at, particularly this distinction between the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So he gives him two commands. You've got to work this garden. You've got to keep this garden. And the Lord commanded the man saying, You, sh you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we're, we're 16 verses into chapter 2. Eve still hasn't been created. So the command has been given to Adam. The commission has been given to Adam. Eve's not yet on the scene. That's going to become important for Genesis chapter 3. Now what happens in this process is God, may, God recognizes that it's not good for Adam to be alone. Uh, this is in verse 18. It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him or a helper that corresponds to or supports him. And then he, what he does is he parades all the other animals in the garden that have been created through or past Adam, and he has, has Adam name each of them. So Adam goes through and names all the animals. And after Adam has seen all the rest of God's creation, he concludes, uh, as God has already asserted, there's not a helper fit for me. There's not one of these creatures that is my helper. And so what God does in verse uh, 21 the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up uh, in its place with flesh. In verse 22, And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Now, in, in, these, in those details, you have something happening. Eve is created after Adam, 
And the, the reason that's significant is because it's establishing a pattern of what we call male headship in creation. And that's not just established by her being created after him. It's also established by the fact that he names her. So if you'll notice, uh, when, Ad, when all the animals are being paraded past Adam uh, in verse 19, uh, Adam is naming every living creature. This is one of the aspects of him exercising dominion over creation. So Adam is naming all these creatures. And, and then what happens is when he realizes he has no helper, God puts him to sleep. Then God doesn't name the woman and then introduce her to Adam. God actually wakes Adam up and introduces the woman to him. And then he names her woman. This is last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. This is Adam naming Eve as part of his headship and responsibility over her. Now keep in mind, Eve wasn't on the scene when Adam was given his dominion or his call or his job. So presumably he's going to have to fill Eve in on the things that she missed, right? Before she was created. God gives Adam these things and then creates Eve afterwards. So now it's Adam's job to, to lead her, to guide her, to train her and discipline her in these things. Um, and it's her job to, to learn what, what her commission is. Now that's important because when you get to Genesis chapter three, uh, you find that the serpent is going to approach Eve, not Adam in the garden. So this is Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, he doesn't go to Adam, he goes to Eve. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may not eat, or we may eat of the tree of the, may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, it's often noted that Eve has added something to God's initial command. But... The question is, whose fault is that? Because she wasn't there when God gave that initial command. So in some sense, we're already seeing in Eve's response to the serpent, either a breakdown in her ability to have learned what Adam should have taught her, or a failure on Adam's part to teach to her and disciple her appropriately into the things which she should have learned. And the serpent goes for Eve, not for Adam's uh, usurping the created order that God has put in place. So what happens? Verse four, the serpent challenges the woman's assertion, you will not surely die. And verse five, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the man saw that the tree, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now this is showing us something, it's telling us something. Namely, Adam is there the whole time Eve is being deceived by the serpent. He's not engaging the serpent. He's not dealing with the serpent. He's actually letting Eve run front on this. And he's actually letting Eve lead him. She sees the tree. She discerns what the serpent has said. She takes it. She eats. Then she gives it to Adam. You have the roles being reversed as they were created. So rather than Adam having discipled Eve into God's commission and command, Eve is being discipled and led by the serpent. And she's leading Adam into essentially the serpent's commission, right? The, the, the fruit is to be eaten, and she, she's the one who leads Adam in that way. Now, you might say that this is particularly harsh on Eve, right, uh, as I'm looking at it right now. But notice, it's all Adam's fault the whole way through. Because when God comes to the garden to figure out what's going on, even though he knows, but he's going to engage with man and woman, notice what he does. He doesn't go to Adam and Eve to find out what's going on. He goes to Adam. This is in verse 9. And they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Verse 11, he, which is God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, it is the woman who you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So Adam's just admitted, yes, God, you were right. I, I did not listen to your voice. I listened to the voice of Eve instead. And the Lord God then addresses the woman, and he says, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, it was the serpent who deceived me in I ate. So everyone's kind of shifting blame. And God uh, gives this kind of uh, condemnation over these things. Um, but what you're seeing in Genesis 3, uh, it, particularly in these verses, is something uh, profound. Namely, uh, even though God created man as the head and, and wife as the helper, uh, what, what actually happens is a reversal. This is a quote that I put for you in your notes by Ray Ortland. Um, he says, the wife is acting as a head, but not a wise head. And the husband is acting as a helper, but not a wise helper, right? So Adam's right there by Eve, not being a good helper. And Eve is right there engaging with a serpent, not being a good head. No one's doing their job. Everything's upside down. But God nevertheless engages them. He, he pursues them. He, he curses the serpent to uh, face punishment. And this is the first gospel proclamation. But I can't dwell on that. So I have to go to verse 16. To the woman, he says, so God is engaging now. God engages with the woman. He says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, the ESV says, but he shall rule over you. We'll talk about that in a second. So God is engaging with Eve and Adam separately. And that's really important. God doesn't say to all of mankind, pain over childbearing, pain over the soil of the ground. God says to Eve one thing and to Adam another thing. That's important for understanding what Eve's role is and how it is fallen and what Adam's role is and how his role is fallen. So the fact that God gives a different punishment to the woman and to the man is significant as to what their commission is in creation. Okay? So what happens with Eve? She is given this pain in childbearing. Now, as is, is pointed out by many commentators, this does not just refer to the, the painful aspect of having children, although that is painful, I'm told. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's not just the pain of bearing children. It is also the pain of raising and rearing children. The whole of the labor of rearing children, godly offspring, is going to be a pain now because of the fall. So this is, this is Eve's orientation. It's her responsibility. It's not just to have kids. Her responsibility also is to raise up godly offspring. Now, if you're saying, well, it seems like he's just talking about childbearing, just glance quickly to uh, what God says to Adam. Uh, this is at the end of verse 17 in the last line. He says, curse is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, he's not talking about Adam's going to get blisters when he works the ground. Although that certainly does happen with that physical labor. He's talking about the general toil and, and strife that Adam will face trying to produce fruit out of the ground. The whole of his life is going to be affected by the fall. So too with Eve. The whole of her labor is going to be affected by the fall, including the rearing of godly children. In pain to Eve, he says, you shall bring forth children. And that's just not having them. That's also raising them. The other piece of the fall that happens is there's this strife created between man and woman as a result of the fall. Uh, Eve, he says, your desire will be for your husband or contrary to your husband, some translations will say. The point is, she will have an unhealthy desire, not a good desire, an unhealthy desire to usurp authority from the man. Now, I'm not just reading into the text. The word desire appears three times in the entire Hebrew Bible, this specific word. Uh, here, one time in chapter 4, and then again in the Song of Songs. In the Song of Songs, the reference is, my lover's desire is for me, or my beloved's desire is for me. 
That's the only time in the entire Hebrew Bible it's used in a positive sense. And the other two senses here and in Genesis 4, it's used in a negative sense. And if you just want to glance, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God says to him, uh, God is talking to Cain, telling him not to sin. And he says, uh, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you or contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So sin has a desire for Cain, not a positive desire, a negative desire to rule him and he must subdue it. This is a, a afflicted relationship between Cain and his sinful desire. And so he must rule over it, right? And so it is with, with the wife and the husband. There's this strife that she will want to rule over her husband, um, but he, in fact, will actually rule over her. Now, two, two things happen in, in that result. One, part of the fall is women seeking to usurp authority from men, uh, and not just by taking the headship role, also by undermining headship and, and things like that. There's, there's many ways to usurp that kind of authority. But also, uh, man's tendency will be to uh, either passivity to let the woman do that kind of thing, as you see with Adam when Eve is tempted by the serpent, but also an ungodly kind of domineering. Both of those things are kind of created out of this, that men will either be passive and pushovers or that men will be ungodly dominant people over women, subjugating them and not, not ruling them as Christ says headship ought to be enacted. So both of those are kind of created out of this, this tension. So we see that. Uh, and then uh, the last thing to, to take note of is the, the, curse uh, or the part of the curse that specifically goes down to Adam. He says, because you, God says in verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So Adam is, is punished because he listened to Eve instead of to God. He will bring forth uh, out of toil and pain, the work of his hands out of the ground. Verse 18, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plains of the field, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. Out of it you were taken, and from it, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Adam's general fall situation is that he will he will have toil and strife all of his all of the days of his his life in enacting the task that God gave him to rule and exercise dominion over the world. Now uh, that rulership and exercising of dominion is the task that Adam is given. It's a mistake to equate the task of Adam to let's say the job that you currently work if you're a man, right? Your, your great commission task is not the specific job that you have. It's the overarching task of creating culture for the kingdom of God. That's, that's the command that Adam is given. And similarly, the woman's role as a helper corresponding to that is not just to have children. It's to have godly children so that uh, Adam's role is aided in help and she is to come alongside him and help him in that task of cultivating the world. This does not mean that women can never hold jobs. That's not exactly what it's saying. And it doesn't mean that uh, only men can hold jobs and they ought to never focus on children or the rearing of children. The point is the dominant responsibility for children falls to the woman and the dominant responsibility for cultural creation falls to the man. But both of these actually interact in a, in a quite beautiful way in the text of scripture. So what can we conclude, let's say, with this initial sketch of gender roles that, that Genesis paints for us? I'd like to submit a couple of, a couple of things. One is... It gives us a sense of what kind of sin tendencies are possible that men will face and sin tendencies that women will face. Now, men and women will face different sin tendencies. We know this because Eve's sin tendencies are different than Adam's because she can do things inappropriate to her role that he, if he did them, would be appropriate to his role. 
And he can do things inappropriate to his role that if she did them, they would be appropriate to her role. So they will face different kinds of sin temptations. So firstly, uh, you'll just notice that Adam will be prone to passivity. And, uh, and in the modern context, that'll, that'll take the shape of uh, justifying that in a rather noble way, right? I'm actually for, for women in leadership, that kind of thing. And that is, that is often a, a noble way to say, I don't want to exercise any kind of godly headship or authority in any way. I'm passing the baton, as Adam does to Eve. He passes the responsibility to her, and that creates kind of the problem. What uh, Dr. Currid, uh, who's been walking a couple of uh, me through Genesis in, in our, my Pentateuch class that I have with him, he said it this way, uh, instead of what Adam did, what Adam ought to have done is taken a tree limb and beaten the snot out of the serpent with it. That's what Adam should have done. But instead what he does is he sits by passively and he, he does nothing. He doesn't intervene at all. Uh, Adam instead allows his wife to be tempted and he even submits to her leadership. So that's a, a unique sin temptation to Adam. To Eve, a sin temptation would be to subvert Adam's rule over her, which is a distortion of the creation that God has given. So Eve's, Eve's temptation will be to subvert that rule. Adam's temptation will be to pass off the rule. Also, uh, Adam will tend, if not towards passivity, as I mentioned earlier, towards an ungodly kind of dominance over his wife. Uh, we see this in many cultures where women are simply abused and neglected and kind of treated as property. That's not part of the Christian creation or worldview. That's not what it means to exercise headship. Uh, headship is a totally different thing in the Bible. So just because you'll see abuses of this in the later parts of Genesis, that doesn't mean that that's God's good design for example, multiple wives in a family or something like that. Uh, those are abuses of, of this kind of thing. It's part of the fall. And, and also, uh, you'll notice that this, this kind of two things, this kind of domineering and passivity, we see both of those play out in our culture, uh, don't we? So, uh, a, a last thing, which is pretty, pretty important to know, eat the serpent uh, will, will tempt Adam and Eve differently to abandon their roles. So, a, a modern example of this would be the minimization or the, the denigration of what it means to be a woman in God's church. So uh, you'll hear things like, well, if you're a woman and you stay at home and you raise children, that's somehow less than work and less than a job and you should go get a real job and you know, not bother with children. Uh, that is purely something that the serpent would say because he doesn't want Eve or Adam to have any kind of godly offspring. And it's a great way to sell in a positive way some vision that is actually less than good in creation. And men uh, will likewise uh, be tempted to listen to the serpent and either uh, put their wives to work 24-7 so they can also have better job, better pay, better vacation, live in a bigger house. Or men will be uh, attempted to uh, neglect their wives, neglect their homes, and obsess over their work, uh, also which is a distortion of creation. Because Adam is also called to nurture and steward Eve, just as he is to till the soil and cultivate culture. So in this initial sketch, I'm just briefly laying out some things we're going to dive deeper into in the subsequent sessions. But just one big thing I want you to note uh, and this is a little bit of engaging with culture around us, which says that the male headship that we see in the church today, we, we would say, many people would say that's a result of the fall. That's part of fallen creation. We need to actually kind of do away with that. And I would submit to you, based on reading Genesis 3, as, as we've just sketched it out tonight, I don't think male headship is a result of the fall. I think the better way to understand it is male headship properly exercised would have prevented the fall. Male headship, if Adam was exercising that appropriately, the fall wouldn't have happened. He would have dealt with the serpent, put him away, and, and they would have been in the garden uh, till eternity come, right? Because male headship was not exercised appropriately, the fall comes. And with it, all kinds of distortions. So with that initial sketch, uh, I'll just close uh, with a brief word of prayer, and then we'll go to some questions. Father, we thank you for your word uh, and for our time tonight. 
Lord, admittedly, this is uh, so brief a time to try to engage with so many uh, dense and, and laden topics, and yet we, we trust that you will be good to us as we try to work our way through it. Uh, we ask just for wisdom uh, for the rest of the evening. Uh, we ask for your grace as we try to engage with this topic, that we would be sensitive uh, and careful, uh, and mostly, Lord, that we would be faithful to whatever your word says to us. We pray this all in your name. Amen.